Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. We're giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. And now, here are the doctors. John, I think we have another great show lined up for today, as usual. You know, we're going to start off here talking about tax reform. Um, Once again, I think we've touched on this before, but, you know, it's getting to be more of a reality now. I mean, the House has prevented, has released their their Mm -hmm. plan. And uh, there are some certainly some interesting provisions in there, isn't there? Yeah, there are, and um, you know, it's kind of like a we were talking a minute ago. Uh, it's it's coin flip. I mean, who's gonna? Is it really going to go through? That's um, right. I don't think anybody knows the answer to that. There's certainly uh, some optimism out there in the markets, but we'll get into the details as we go through that uh, that particular topic. That's right. And then we're going to follow that up with the eight key questions every investor should answer. This is a great article from DFA. Dimensional Fund Advisors, and, uh, you know, there there's some, some key questions you have to answer if you're going to be successful as an investor, and uh, they have them outlined here in very interesting articles, so we'll dig into that as well. But we're going to, uh, well, before we do that, though, by the way, I'm Steve Marbert. I'm a certified financial planner and a Dave Ramsey Smart Investor Pro with over 20 years' experience in providing financial planning and investment advice. And I'm John Travis, also a Dave Ramsey Smart Vester Pro. I have an MBA in finance and have been helping corporations and individuals with planning for over 25 years. And we are excited to have you listening to us today on our weekly show. Our podcasts are up every week on Friday afternoons. Yeah, go to our website, moneymd.net. That's where you'll find the podcast. We also have a link uh, to the historical podcast. We have them categorized by different topics, a lot of different uh, things we talk about, Steve, if you... Man, we've been doing this for, for five, six years now, so um, we've covered right. pretty much every topic, I think, out there. Seems like it. It seems like we've it, a couple times. Hundreds of topics, Absolutely. no doubt. So check that out. We also have a Facebook page as well. We post um, uh, items out there periodically, so go check us out on Facebook. And if, you, if you're not getting us on your, on your computer, um, on your smartphone, you can go to iTunes, search MoneyMD, and we're right there. Yep. You know, I get the alert every week whenever our new one's popped up, so... It's right there, easy to listen to us. And do check us on our website, moneymd.net, where you can link to us there. You can ask us your questions. You can email us directly at info at moneymd.net or link to us through our website. Um, well, John, before we jump into it, you know, we've got to touch on football. I mean, football's <laughs> gotten exciting again. Clemson's yeah. back in the mix yeah, they are. For, the, for the playoffs. They're on that They're on that fourth spot. Yeah. Hanging, hanging hang, on. Hanging on, if you're they, right. If they went out, they're in. So sure, they, sure. they control their fate. Well, which if is they good went, position. if they went out and win the ACC championship, right, 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 right. which is not given. I mean, they play no. South Carolina in there. You remember? True, and that's always a wild card. Yeah. Uh, I don't care not how the last couple of years. I don't care how bad South Carolina <laughs> is. Uh, it could they could easily upset us. I mean, if we can lose to Syracuse. We can certainly lose to South Carolina. So. Yeah, I mean, anything can happen. It's an exciting time of the year. You've got Auburn and Georgia playing this weekend. Oh, that'll and, be a big um, game. Notre wow. Dame and Miami. So, yeah, there are some big games. Clemson plays Florida State. Right. And right. Um, South Carolina plays Florida. I'm not sure who Tech plays. Who does Tech play this week? Georgia I don't know. Tech, I don't know either. I don't know. Yeah. But anyway, it's a good time of the year. and It's um, a fun time. It really is. Getting close to the holidays here, too. That's right. Exactly. Right around the corner here. So, fall is upon us. Yes, it is. Thank so, goodness. All right, and that leads us up here, though, to our question, or our fact of the week. Yes, the, um, see, this comes from the uh, the GAO, which is the Government Accountability Office, and um, we've seen this stat before, and, and it's really why we, part of why we do what we do is to try to help people 
have a, a good, healthy retirement. The, the statistic is, is 34%, about one out of every three American households headed by seniors at least uh, 65 years of age, they receive 90% or more of their annual income just from Social Security. And that average is wow. about $1,100. Wow. Is it $1,100 per senior? Mm-hmm. That's kind of what I figured. I yep. didn't know what that number was. But yeah, that is kind of shocking. I mean, that's a third of seniors rely almost totally on Social Security. And that means they're living off of, for a couple, they're living off of what, $2,200. Yeah, um, and that's tough. That's tough. That's a pretty tight income for retirement. That's a third of them. So you don't want to be in those shoes. That just emphasizes the need for planning. You have to start planning early for retirement. You have to start saving money. You got to have something in addition to Social Security. Social Security is just not going to get it done in today's world. It's not. I, I went to a, a Dave Ramsey. Um, he had a smart um, uh, live event last night with him him and uh, Rachel Cruz, his daughter, and and uh, it was about a three-hour event. He was talking about, you know, starting to save and using some of these tools. And if you're listening out there and you're not doing this, call us. Uh, we can sit down with you and help you. If you know some people that are struggling or kids, um, you know, this information is complicated, but it doesn't have to be complex. Exactly. So just just do something. Take a step. Exactly. Don't be in that third. Yes, don't be in that third living off Social Security and retirement. So a uh, great fact of the week. Okay, and that leads up to our first topic here, and that is the House reform tax reform bill mm-hmm. that has been released by the House. So what investors need to know about taxes? Yeah, this is written by Michael Townsend from uh, Charles Schwab. Um, you know, disclaimer, we're not CPAs, right? So uh, we certainly are very interested in taxes. We try to help our clients do tax planning, so we want to understand you know, some of the ins and outs of these. And, you know, the, the House Republicans, they, they unveiled their long-awaited tax reform back on uh, November the 2nd. And it really kind of fired a gun, a, a two-month uh, race here that's, um, you know, they're going to be going through the House and the Senate to, um, to get this approved. And this is the most sweeping overhaul of the tax code since Reagan, you know, back in the 80s. So right. some pretty big changes here. The road is certainly far from smooth, though, dig, uh, as law, lawmakers dig into the details. It's a 400-page bill, um, so we certainly expect some changes to be made in the weeks ahead. And, uh, you know, there's certainly going to be some controversies as well. Um, you know, if you look in the Senate, it's certainly narrowly divided, and uh, they're going to come out with their own tax reform version this you know later this month. So we're going to dive into some of the the different topics here and the different um, categories that may be of interest to you. Yeah, this is a very interesting topic. And you know, when the Senate comes out with their bill, if they can get it approved, then they got to reconcile the two. So a lot of this can change for sure. But in the House version, there are some very interesting points about this bill. The first point is there's going to be fewer brackets. Um, Though the top bracket for the wealthiest filers remains unchanged, um, the bill will reduce the number of brackets for most Americans to three, to a 12% bracket, a 25% bracket, and a 35% bracket. Um, But it maintains the current top rate, 39.6, for individuals earning more than 500,000 or for couples making more than a million dollars a year. So, for the vast majority of Americans, it's 
three tax brackets. So it, it does simplify things. It does. I think the 12% goes up to 90,000. Um, the 15% today goes up to about 76,000. So there will be some That's benefit right. for, yeah, for there'll middle be, income. There'll be reduction for just, just about everybody in the lower brackets. Yep, that's that's good. And and so another um, thing on the list here, Steve, is you know there was some talk about changing uh, 401k um, uh, you know amounts that you can contribute. They were going to put a cap on there, and some of them were as low as twenty four hundred dollars. That looks like that's been taken off um, the the table. Uh, Donald, uh, President Trump did some some tweets on that. But it looks like that is off the table, that the 401ks, you'll still be able to contribute to that with no change. That's good. That's the way it should be. I don't think they should touch retirement plans. You've got to encourage people to save, and that's a key way that everybody saves for retirement. Um, and there's also no change to taxation of investment income. The bill you know, calls for tax rates on capital gains, dividend income, which is currently at 0%, 15%, or 20% depending on your income bracket, to remain unchanged. Um, it also doesn't make any changes to the net investment income tax, the 3.8% surtax on investment income for wealthier filers. That's part of the Affordable Care Act, you know, and Obamacare that went in place a few years ago. Um, that provision was supposed to have been eliminated as part of the Repeal Act for um, – <laughs> The ACA, but um, that didn't make you know, it through. That didn't make it through earlier this year. So for the time being, at least the surtax and the net investment income tax, all that stays in place. Yeah, the other thing they did here, Steve, is uh, they eliminated the estate tax. I mean, it was already um, up at you know five point four million dollars, but completely going to go away in twenty twenty four. Um, but the bill immediately doubles the exemption for estates. Um, it goes to eleven million for individuals and 22 million for couples in 2018. Now, you know, it depends on who's in the, um, you know, who's running the government, but these things can change in the future. These aren't necessarily permanent changes, no, but certainly not. And, and for most people, you know, the current, it doesn't affect them at all, but you know, they are trying to eliminate the estate tax. Uh, they're also preserving the step up basis. This is important. Heirs will continue to be able to pay capital gain taxes based on the value of the asset at the time of the death of the previous owner not at the time the previous owner acquired the assets. That's a big deal. I mean, that is. That's real important, and that affects just about everybody that inherits anything. Um, you know, you want that step up in place because mm-hmm. if you otherwise, every time you inherit something, you you have to pay capital gains taxes on yeah on any gains when it was the, purchased when it was purchased that's you know right. over the lifetime of the decedent. So in this case. But that that's a really good provision. That is a step up basis. Um, they're also going to eliminate the alternative minimum tax. Um, getting rid of the unpopular AMT was it was a key plank in the Republican strategy from day one. So that's good. I think that um, was catching a lot of people in its net. Plus, it just complicates taxes so much. You know, you don't know whether you're paying an alternative minimum tax or whether you're paying your regular tax rate. Why have all that complication? I think getting rid of that is the right step. So that that would be a really good move if that goes through. Uh, as far as deductions, though, it doubles the standard deduction. As expected, the bill will increase the standard deduction from sixty-three fifty to twelve thousand dollars for individuals, and from twelve thousand seven hundred for married couples to twenty-four thousand for married couples. So, you know, as we're going to get to here in a minute, they're eliminating a lot of deductions, but they're raising the standard deduction doubling it. So that that's a big deal. That's going to be a savings for the majority of people. Yeah, that's a big, I mean, doubling it like that is going to give some people some good, good um, tax, you know, relief. 
they're also going to reduce the deduction for home mortgage interest. This is interesting. Uh, current law allows homeowners to deduct the interest on mortgages up to a million dollars, but the house bill caps at at $500,000 for new purchases. So uh, this is certainly going to be a point of contention. I know there's been a lot of media coverage of this particular one, but they're, they're talking about you know reducing that deduction. You know, I, I kind of feel like that's the right thing to do because I don't think you should be encouraging people to have a million-dollar mortgage. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a lot. You know, a half-million-dollar mortgage is a lot. So it seems to me a half-million-dollar mortgage is enough to to allow them to deduct. But I know if you live up north, you know, and yeah. you live out west, I mean, some of those houses, the house prices are crazy. And I don't know. That's going to be a contentious subject when that comes up for debate. Um, but the other point here, though, is it eliminates most deductions and credits. And this is where the heart of the debate will reside, John, as it eliminates hundreds of popular tax incentives. Include, included in those are things like medical expenses, student loan interest, adoption expenses. As expected, it eliminates the state and local tax deductions. Um, providing only a deduction for state and local property taxes, and that's capped at $10,000. So lawmakers that are representing constituents in high-tax states like California and New York, you know, they're going to really fight this, mm-hmm. and they've already voiced a lot of opposition to this this facet of the well, bill. Maybe they need to lower their state taxes. No kidding. <laughs> yeah. I mean, their property taxes, right. Most of these states are, are blue states that have very high That's right. taxes. That's right. So it'll be so. interesting to see how this works out. Um, they're also, um, Steve, they're going to um, uh, keep the uh, tax-exempt municipal bonds. So that was one of the questions that people had as well. So the question is, what happens next? I mean, House leaders uh, foresee a very brief timeline in the chamber, um, starting with the consideration by the House and Ways uh, means committee this week. And, um, you know, a lot of the, these committee members have, have been involved uh, with this for weeks that they shouldn't take very long to get through. They're really targeting um, to have the bill to the House the, the week of November the 13th. And final passage in the House could come before the chamber adjourns for the Thanksgiving recess on November the 17th. So, I mean, we're talking about like next week. So they're moving along with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're going to have to. Unfortunately, the path in the Senate where the Republicans have a very narrow majority, 52 to 48 majority, that that path is much murkier in the Senate. Senate's Finance Committee Chairman Orrin Hatch, who will shepherd the process in the upper chamber, plans to introduce his own version of the tax bill, and it could be quite different from the House bill. Uh, The Hatch's committee would then have to review the bill, consider amendments, and approve it before sending it to the Senate floor. So... There's a lot to be done in the Senate, and it's yet to be seen if they can pass anything in the Senate. Because, you know, with oh, yeah. the Affordable Care Act repeal, they couldn't have passed anything. Mm-hmm. And I, I have my doubts they're going to be able to get any kind of tax reform through the Senate. So this whole thing may be a moot point. Could be. Could be. So, I mean, bottom line is it's hard to plan. I had a conversation with a, um, a client yesterday, and it's really hard to make any decisions on what to do because um, nothing's concrete. And so, you know, basically, if you have, you know, a good financial plan, you're well diversified, at this point, it's really best to ignore all this political noise, really focus on your long-term goals. You know, if you have questions or concerns, you can certainly give us a call. We'll walk through uh, your situation with you. But um, this is still up in the air. 
It's very much up in the air. So I wouldn't read too much into this. Wouldn't get too excited or too depressed about these tax changes. Not yet. I think there's a real good chance we won't see anything happen. But, uh, you know, here's hoping. That's right. All right. And that leads us up here to the question of the week. What will the score be? No, let's see. We're not talking about football anymore. No, we're not talking about football, John. I was Uh, looking ahead to Thanksgiving weekend and Clemson, Carolina playing each other. Right, right. You want to know how much Clemson is going to win by. Okay, two touchdowns. Two touchdowns. There you go. They'll probably be favored by that amount. Yeah, we'll see. The real question of the week is um, 401Ks. A lot of options. We see people being, being very, very confused with all the choices. And so the question is, is should I use a target date retirement fund in my 401k uh, because there's simply too many choices. I'm confused on what I should do. And that's think, a great question. It is. I think the general answer is, is yeah, target date funds are, are, are pretty good diversified vehicles. Um, we certainly like to go in and tailor and carve out some, some different allocations, but uh, for the average investor, um, it's a good security to buy because it's diversified. It does the diversification for you. It basically owns funds underneath that one fund. Yeah. And then also as you get nearer to retirement, it gets more conservative. So it's a, it's kind of a, you know, one step, one shop, you know, one shop, one stop, one stop shop shop for all. There you go. I mean, fun. So it's good. I mean, there's nothing wrong with a, with a target date retirement fund. In my opinion, they tend to be a little overly conservative. Mm -hmm. They tend to be overly weighted toward large U S stocks. Um, so you can carve out a better allocation in most plans if you want to be a little more aggressive. Um, but it's certainly not a bad choice. If you want to keep it simple, yeah, just pick a target day retirement fund. If you're young out there, pick the 2055 fund or something like that and just stick it in there and forget it. And it'll probably do pretty well if yeah. the market does well. Right. So um, great question of the week. All right. That leads us up here to our next topic, and that is the eight key questions Every investor should answer. Yeah, John, this is based on an article out of uh, DFA, Dimensional Fund Advisors, here very recently. And, you know, whether you are investing, been investing for decades, or you're just getting started, at some point, you have to answer some basic questions about your investment strategy. And the answer to these questions will determine whether you're successful over the long term or whether you fall victim to kind of the mediocre returns that most investors realize over time. So trying to answer these questions, they may be intimidating, but, you know, know that you're not alone. I mean, while this is, this isn't intended to be an exhaustive list of the questions you have to answer if you're going to invest yourself, um, but it does shed light on some of the key principles that may help improve your odds of investment success over the long term. So the first question here, John, is should I pick individual stocks? No. You know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the short answer, and that's exactly right. Um, you know, I mean, the market is an effective information processing machine. Millions of market participants buy and sell stocks every day, and the real-time information they bring to the market helps set the prices. That information... Um, means that competition for information is very stiff. Um, people are out there researching and, you know, they're bringing that information to the market. And so what it means, though, is trying to outguess market prices is very difficult, if not impossible, for anyone, even professional money managers. However, the good news is investors who are willing to diversify, um, 
you know, this, this is good news for them. They don't have to try to beat the market. They don't have to try to outguess the market and pick individual stocks. Rather than basing an investment strategy on trying to find stocks that are priced incorrectly, investors instead should rely on the information in market prices and help build a diversified portfolio focused on the right asset classes. So we're going to talk about that a little more as we go along here. Um, So the answer to the question certainly is no. Don't worry about trying to pick individual stocks. Studies show that only 25% of stocks make up 100% of the return over a 25-year period. Um, So the odds of picking individual stocks is greatly against you. It's a risky losing proposition and for most people. So instead, diversify into thousands of stocks through mutual funds or ETFs. That's the short answer. Yeah, that's great. Um, that, that's an interesting statistic over time is that if there's a very small percentage. Um, so you want to own those. And uh, you know, if you don't own those, you're going to be hosed. That's right? exactly right. So yeah. that's, that's a good one. The second one here, Steve, is what are the chances of picking an investment fund, a mutual fund that survives and outperforms. I mean, basically flip a coin and your odds of getting heads or tails are 50-50. Historically, the odds of selecting a mutual fund that was still around 15 years later are about the same. So think about that. Yeah. 50% of all mutual funds don't survive. Well, why wouldn't they survive? Well, because they have poor performance, right? They close right. them down and they consolidate them into other um, into That's other right. funds. So regarding outperformance, so can you pick a fund that was going to outperform? The odds are even worse. I mean, the market's pricing power works against fund managers who try to outperform through stock picking or market timing. I mean, one neat look at, you know, further um, than some of the real world re- results that we see. And based on this research, only 17% of U.S. equity mutual funds um, and 18% of fixed income funds have survived and outperformed uh, over the last uh, 15 years. So one out of six funds out there today, if you're starting today, based on the history, if that repeated itself, you would have a one out of six chance, chance you know, about a 17% chance of finding a fund that's going to be around in 15 years that outperforms the market. Yeah. Stacked that's, against you. It really is stacked against you. That's Those are very interesting statistics. You know, and by the same token, some investors select mutual funds based on past returns. Um, However, research shows that the funds in the top 25 percent, the top quartile of the previous five years of those funds, only 23 percent ranked in the top quartile in the next five years. So those odds are less than you would expect by random luck. Um, even picking, so if you pick a fund based on past performance and it's a top fund from the previous five years, there's less than a 25% chance that it's going to remain in the top, a top fund for the next five years. It's just random luck in other words. So the, the bottom line is past performance offers no insight into a fund's future return. So don't base your decision on past performance. Don't pick funds based on that and and trying to beat the market. The odds that are that they won't be around long enough to repeat that performance, even if they could. So that's a great question. The next question here that you have to ask yourself is: Do I have to outsmart? Do I have to outsmart the market to be a successful investor? Financial markets have rewarded diversified, long-term investors instead of fighting markets. 
Um, so instead of fighting markets, let them work for you. Plenty of asset classes have returned more than the S&P 500, um, which is U.S. large stocks. So the good news is you don't have to be a brilliant stock picker or a market timer to be successful. And you also don't have to ferret out the best fund manager. If you simply own the asset classes that historically have delivered superior returns, then the odds are on your side that you will do as well or better than the overall market. Um, so you don't have to outsmart the market. Yeah, I agree. And and another way, uh, another question here, Steve, is, is, uh, is there a better way to build a portfolio? DFA has done a lot of academic research, and they've identified three dimensions of higher returns in stocks. So instead of trying to, you know, attempt to outguess the market prices or find that magical fund, investors can instead pursue better returns by structuring their portfolio around these dimensions. And the dimensions of higher return that have been shown historically are value stocks, small stocks, and high profitability stocks. So if your portfolio is weighted towards these dimensions of higher return, the odds are on your side that you will equal or beat the broad market over time. And that's a real definition of success. And, you know, we always talk about disclaimers, you know, past performance doesn't guarantee the future results. We understand that, but we're looking back at academic research and just history and making decisions based on that. So, exactly um, right. so you can, you can build your portfolio a way that you can get some of these higher dimensions. Exactly. That's a great, great points. Next question here is, is international investing for me? Well, diversification helps reduce unnecessary risk in your portfolio, which provide no additional return. Um, but diversifying only within your home market may not be enough. Instead, global diversification can broaden your investment opportunity set and increase your odds of getting a higher return or lowering risk. And the reason for this, I mean, the S&P 500 is made up of one country, the U.S., and only 500 U.S. stocks. If you look at the MSCI All-Cap World Index, which is a broad worldwide index, it's made up of 46 countries with over 8,000 stocks. So by holding a globally diversified portfolio, investors will be well-positioned to capture returns wherever they occur. So you definitely want to be diversified internationally gives you a lot better chance of capturing returns, whether they be emerging markets or Europe or Asia, wherever they happen outside of the U.S. Um, okay, so that was number five. Next one here is, will making frequent changes to my portfolio help me achieve investment success? So do changes help me help me make a higher return or lower risk? Research consistently shows that it's next to impossible to know which market segments will outperform from period to period. Accordingly, it's better to avoid market timing calls or other speculative changes, which only serve to increase risk and cost. Allowing emotions or opinions about short-term market conditions to impact long-term investment decisions usually leads to disappointing results. So the short answer to this certainly is no. Making frequent changes to your portfolio will not help you achieve investment success. Yeah, I think sometimes people feel like there has to be activity to, to show progress. And a lot of times that activity works against you. Exactly. So you want to be very care, careful. And so, you know, one of the reasons, Steve, why people want activity is, well, you know, they're hearing things on the news. So the question is, should I make changes to my portfolio based on what I'm hearing? 
you know, there's daily market news and commentary. It can certainly challenge your investment discipline. Some messages stir anxiety about the future, while others tempt uh, you know, to chase the latest investment fad. I know Bitcoin's out there right now that people right. are talking about. And, you know, if headlines are unsettling, consider the source and try to maintain a long-term perspective. The media's objective is to sell advertising. Um, they want to make the articles interesting and sensational. Their job is not to provide you a well-rounded perspective based on a broad opinion and facts. I mean, that's, that, that is a fact. They sell advertising. That's what they're in the business to do. That's right. So therefore, you should take most news and commentary with a grain of salt. Instead, stick with a disciplined investment process, have a plan, be well diversified, and, and don't make you know, drastic changes based on the news articles. That's exactly right. That's a great point. Okay, so the last question here is what should you be doing as an investor? Um, well, you know, focus on what you can control, and that will lead to a better investment experience. So create an investment plan to fit your needs and your risk tolerance. Structure your portfolio along the dimensions of higher expected returns, as we just talked about. Diversify globally outside the U.S. Um, manage your expenses, your turnover, and your taxes. Those are things you can manage and control. And then stay disciplined through market dips and swings and avoid market timing. So if you're uncomfortable implementing those winning strategies on your own, um, then certainly work closely with a financial advisor to to, to help offer some expertise and guidance to help you focus on those actions that add value. Um, so anyway, good topic. And uh, if you have questions about that, certainly give us a call. And that leads us up here to our last thing, and that is the prescription of the week. Yeah, Steve, we've talked about this quite often, but I think it's it, it bears repeating. Um, it's healthcare savings accounts, also known as HSAs, really the best deal in the market. Um, they're tax-free on the front end, so... You can put a, about $6,800 for a family um, in there. So you, you get a tax deduction. So if you're in a 25% tax bracket, then you're going to get a fourth of that you know, reduced. So it's going to be about $1,700 that you would get back from taxes. And then you can invest it and keep it invested. And when it grows over time, when you pull it out and use it on medical, there's no taxes as well. So it's the only account on the marketplace that is tax-free on the front end and the back end. Yeah, it really is the best tax advantage vehicle on the planet. Um, you get the benefits of an IRA and a Roth combined. So you certainly want to take advantage of health care savings accounts if you can. And if you have a uh, health policy, that's qualified. Yeah, it has to be a high deductible plan. So there, right. there are some contingencies on that. But if you have access to it, use it. Exactly. Good prescription of the week. All right. Well, this brings us to a close for this week's edition of Money MD. Tune in next week on Money MD to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. Do check us out on our website, moneymd.net, and email us your questions. You can email us directly at info at moneymd.net or give us a call at Richard Young Associates, 706 739 Thanks for listening. Have a great rest of the week. Have a good one. This program contains general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. This broadcast is not a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Smart Investor Pro is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor. 